Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Are y'all hungry this morning? Hope so. If you're new here, I say that most every Sunday. By that I mean, are you hungry to eat and feast upon the milk and meat of the Word of God? It's what our souls need. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. You can stay seated for this reading. The Word of God tells us this. Now, on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. How many of you here today remember the show Duck Dynasty. See a few head nods. Whether it be affinity or disdain, I'm sure you may have heard of the show before. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's a Louisiana family that made millions by making duck calls. And it's basically a modern-day real-life, as much as reality TV can be real-life. It's a modern-day real-life version of the Beverly Hillbillies. Just wondering, what do country people do with a lot of money? Now, the only reason I bring that up is because 10 years ago, I won a t-shirt at a youth party I went to by Duck Dynasty, and on the back of the t-shirt, it has three different commands, if you will, that are enumerated from top to bottom, uh, most important to least important. And those three things on the back of the t-shirt said, fear God, love your neighbor, hunt ducks. And, And it's true when you think about it. That's the order upon which we as Christians should live. It's firstly to fear God, then love our neighbor, and then fill in the blank with whatever it might be that you enjoy. Hunting ducks, eating chocolate, watching a good basketball game. I mean, you fill in the blank. Whatever you might enjoy, these are all good gifts from God that we can be thankful for. But in the midst of those three commands, I hope you see it's not just three commands, but there are three opportunities there. I mean, thirdly, right, the command to hunt ducks, there's the opportunity to actually hunt ducks on land. Before you can love others, the opportunity is we can have fellowship, interaction, and relationships with other people. And then the same goes with fearing God or loving God. It's not just we are commanded to do this, but rather we have the opportunity to go before God, to come to Him with our requests, our thanksgivings, to confess our sin before Him, to be made new, to be made clean. Now, whatever that third gift might be, that third opportunity, that third tier item in your own mind, whatever it might be, I hope we can all agree upon the fact that nothing compares to the first two. 
right? The ability to love God, have a relationship with him, and the ability to have relationship and fellowship with other human beings. Those two things are truly the greatest gifts of God. Now in our passage today, we're introduced to ten individuals who for all intents and purposes have not been able to do either of the first two, at least for a while and recently. They haven't been able to have good fellowship with God or fellowship with other people. Because the text tells us in verse 12 that these ten men had leprosy. The Greek word there simply is translated and and means various skin diseases. We don't know exactly what plagued their bodies, but we do know it it was bad. And they had to be excised out of the camp. Leviticus chapter 13 some of that, that's the book that's infamously known as what curtails everybody from their Bible reading plan year after year. But Leviticus 13, verse 45 and 46, tell us what the laws and customs were for men and women, for anybody who had leprosy. The passage tells us, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. In present day, first century, they must live outside of the town, outside of the village, on the outskirts of society. So socially and spiritually, these people had no hope. They were cut off. Socially, we can kind of grasp this, you know, in this world we live in, the, the infamous C disease that many of you may have gotten, but you know that, uh, COVID, if you didn't know what that was, but um, you know that if somebody is sniffling, has a cough, has a little bit of a fever, you know, they got goopy eyes, droopy eyes, they just are not feeling well at all, what do you do? Do you go run and embrace them and have a good conversation with them? No. You know, you, you keep your distance away from all these people. Right Now imagine that kind of stigma, that kind of distancing, magnify it by at least 10, 20, if not 50 times. This is the type of attitude that society had upon these people. You wouldn't want to go near these people. So socially, they were outcast. This is even close family, right? Spouses, children, parents. If you had this disease, you were on the outside of camp. There's no exceptions. They couldn't go and get a meal. They couldn't go to the grocery store. Nothing. No societal involvement or fellowship with others at all. But it's not just socially. You see, spiritually, these men were destitute. Because today, we have the privilege of living in, under the new covenant. We have the privilege of knowing 1 Peter chapter 2, which is all about the priesthood of the believer, all believers. We can all directly go to God, ask for forgiveness because of all that Jesus did. But under the old covenant... How did you have fellowship with God? You had to go to the temple. You had to go to the priests. You had to bring your sacrifices to be made right with God. And these men, these people, they could not do that. They couldn't have any fellowship with God, practically speaking. So they were hopeless. They didn't necessarily know, God, do you hear my prayer? Because I haven't sacrificed in years. I'm still sinful. Why would you hear me? So these men are hopeless. But you see... The grace of God is a reality. A major spoiler alert for you, 
Jesus heals these ten men. But as is the case throughout the Gospel accounts, every time we come across a miracle, a lot of times the recollections and the recordings of it aren't focused on the actual miracle per se, but rather it's about what builds up to the miracle and kind of most importantly, what happens then? How do you live in light of the grace of God that he shows to you? Do you go back and live in sin or do you actually serve Christ and follow him because of his grace that he's shown you? So here in Luke chapter 17, the focus, I believe that the text is kind of whittling it down, give us uh, something to think about. The text is emphasizing the importance for you and I to live properly in light of God's grace. What's one of those lessons that we teach children from a very early age? You know, we use the phrase as parents, what do you say? Thank you, right? We, We teach it as soon as they can talk, as soon as they start understanding things, what do you say? Thank you. And this passage right here is kind of a reminder from God, in light of all that I've done for you, in light of who I am, how good, how gracious I am, what do you say? Thank you. So I don't care if you're five, you're 15, you're 50, you're 85. This is a reminder that all human beings need to constantly be reminded of. That is the reminder to be grateful. To be grateful to God for all that he is and all that he's done for us. So, in light of all of that, That's the main point, the one-point sermon for you today. In light of all that God has done for you, you are called and you must say thank you. So in light of all of that, let's walk through the text, unpack it, see how we arrive at that proposition, that truth we must believe. Verse 11, the text tells us, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now immediately, God Almighty threw Luke, the human author, we're reminded of why Jesus came into the world. You see, this phrase, on his way to Jerusalem with his eyes set towards Jerusalem, this phrase actually is found first in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. The text tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, it continues, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way toward Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus himself says, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And then we find it yet again in chapter 17, verse 11. You see, Jesus did not aimlessly come into the world. He didn't randomly come and just randomly plopped down into uh, you know, the region of Palestine. He didn't randomly go to town to town. No, he came for a specific reason, to go to Jerusalem. And from reading the entire gospel account, we know what that means, what's packed into that. Because what happened at Jerusalem? It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Jesus came to teach, absolutely. He came to preach. He came to do wonderful miracles, as we'll see in just a moment. But most importantly, he came to die, to rise again, to atone for our sins, to give us eternal life through his resurrection. That's the main reason Jesus came to die. And you might be wondering, what does that have to do with healing of leprosy in these 10 guys in Luke 17? Absolutely everything. 
Because as we'll see at the end, the salvation of God is the greatest gift that you and I should be grateful for. So the text continues. Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee to diametrically opposed groups, the Jews, the Samaritans. He was along that border. We don't know particularly which region he was in, but it was close nonetheless. And then verse 12 and 13, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. See, we don't know exactly why Jesus was stopping here, going into that village. Maybe uh, the disciples or himself, maybe they wanted a little snack. Maybe they were going to spend the night there in this village. Uh, Maybe going to see uh, a friend or somebody. We don't know exactly why. But nonetheless, most likely on the outskirts of town, right, as they were going into the village, it tells us that ten men who had leprosy met him, met all of them traveling together. And you notice the precise wording there. It says they stood at a distance, right? They knew their place in life. They kept their distance and they called out in a loud voice. We don't know how far he was walking. Maybe it was 50 feet, 100 feet, maybe 100 yards away. We don't know. But they wanted to get this guy's attention because most likely they had heard of Jesus before. Because the word there, when they say Jesus master, the word master there is used, I believe, eight other times in this, past, in this gospel And the seven other times it's used, it's all used by disciples. So most likely, these ten men somehow had heard about this miracle worker, this good preacher-teacher guy walking around. And he always had this group of 15-ish people always kind of trailing him and following him. And he always walks with dignity. There's just something different about this man. We don't know what quite how to describe it. So they see him off in the distance. They say, Jesus Master, have pity on us. You notice what they asked of him. That's as specific as their request got. Have pity on us. They didn't ask for specific healing or it was just, Lord, please help me. And how many of you, how many of us can empathize with that sentiment? Right? However weak or discouraged or hopeless you might be, the only thing you can utter out of your soul is, Lord, help me. Show mercy to me, please. Just some, just a little bit. Now you notice what Jesus did then in verse 14. text tells us that Jesus saw them. Of course he heard them, right? Jesus hears and sees all. He responded with a very interesting response and instruction. Go show yourselves to the priests. It's very intriguing, and three observations about that, why it is. Firstly, Jesus does not immediately heal these men. Sometimes in the Gospels, in the Bible, there is a miraculous, instantaneous miracle recorded. It is, you know, a split second and it's done. That doesn't happen here. We see Jesus, go show yourselves to the priest. The implication is, I think for you and I, sometimes when God chooses to bless When God chooses to shower his grace upon you, sometimes he does so through your actions, through your obedience, through your participation. I mean, the most easiest example to think about would be, you know, the salvation of a human soul, particularly children, right? Lord, please save 
this child. And of course, God, it's all his work. God is the only one who can save and restore a soul. But how does he usually do it? What is the prescription in God's word? You know, raise them up in the Lord. Teach them the truth. Raise them up in my grace. So sometimes God's blessing, his healing, his provision comes through our participation and obedience. Now, secondly, you notice, where did Jesus instruct them to go? Go show yourselves to the priest. He didn't command them or tell them, you know, go to your family. Go back to your homes. He didn't tell them, go to the bar, go have a drink, you know, celebrate. No, he said, go to the priest. Why? Because, yet again, we see Jesus' true heart. His heart is for these people, their, their hearts, that they might be made renewed and restored to God Almighty. Because it's with the priest, as we explained earlier, that they have forgiveness of sin through their work, through the sacrifices. And Jesus is telling them, go. What's most important now, you must be reconciled to God. Fellowship with God must be restored. Go see the priest. And then, thirdly, these instructions are just flat out weird because of where he called them to go, but also their condition. Right? These men were unclean. You only go see the priest if you're clean. Not before. So they had to act on faith. They, they, they couldn't see their bodies physically immediately and say, yo, you know what, I'm clean, I, I can make it there. No, Lord, why, why should we go there? Like, we're still unclean. They're not going to accept us. We can't even get five feet within the gates of the town. Why would we even go close to the temple, to the priest? Why would we do that? Right? And the reality is for you and I, sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, God's word, God's instructions may sound confusing, may sound weird, may sound hard, and most frankly, or just honestly, we, not, we just don't want to do what he says for whatever reason, whatever excuse you can think of. But it's so important to always, always, always take God at his word. Trust him that what he says, trust his good character, trust that he knows all things, and trust that he knows what he's doing. You notice what happened. As they went, they were cleansed. All ten of the men obeyed. All ten were cleansed. But then, verses 15 to 16, the great return. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. The commentators that I've read in studying this passage, they think and, and kind of agree that this man most likely noticed his, his healing, his restored state, and went back to Jesus before he went to the temple. Now, people differ on that. Um, and we, we can talk about the details. But the point is, in the emphasis that Luke makes for us, when he saw he was healed, Right? When he noticed, when he saw physically, when he felt vi- tangibly, what he felt like with smooth skin, that Ovino perfect skin, right? he went back. He came back to Jesus. He returned to Jesus, praising God in a loud voice. The moment he was healed, he did this. Now, it's interesting to note in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Greek word that's used for return or NIV, it's came back, whatever your version might say. Came back, he returned to Jesus. 
that Greek word is used 22 different times. Now, 21 of those times happen in the Gospel of Luke. So this is a theme of Luke, you know, just this whole concept of returning to God, turning to God in repentance and following him. We see that here yet again. He returned, turned to Jesus. And you'll notice the precise wording again. It says, praising God in a loud voice. The same loud voice in verse 13 that cried out for mercy is now being used to give thanks for the mercy that was received. Then from verses 16 and 18, right? there's that parenthetical little phrase there, and he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus later elaborates on that. Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? So just to condense all of that, basically, the person you would least expect to go back to God, to go back to Jesus, is the very one who did. Further evidence in the Gospel of Luke that the salvation of God goes out to the least of these, the least deserving, the most unclean, the untouchables. The people that God cares about the most are the dirtiest, the most messed up, the most broken. And the reality is that's all of us. That's you and I. The key is, do you acknowledge your brokenness? So it's the least likely is the one who receives the true full healing. And that's where verses 17 and 18 come into play. Jesus asked the, just the straight question, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And we're not given the specific reasons of, or details of where these other nine men were, why they did not come back to Jesus. But I do know this much from the text and from life. And this is quite frightening and scary when you think about it. It is possible to taste and see the miraculous, yet not be transformed in your heart. And this, that statement, that truth, explains a lot of the tension going on in the Gospels as you read them, which is even echoed a lot in this present day and age we live in. How often do we hear or think or, or hear others say, you know, Lord, give me a sign. Just do a miracle in my life. Just do this one thing, and then I'll believe you. Then I'll obey you. Then I'll follow you. But I need just something big right there in front of me. And then I'll follow. But how does Jesus retort that attitude time and time again? Several passages in the Gospels where the basic attitude of Jesus is, you don't need more signs. You don't need more miracles. You don't need more grace, because I've been so gracious to you already, but you don't need more of this. What you need is faith. What you need are eyes that see the grace that I have already given you. What you need is a grateful heart to see and receive all that I have already blessed you with. Because if you don't first have a heart of faith, it doesn't matter how much I do, you won't be grateful. It it will mean nothing to you in light of eternity. And this is further evidenced, further evidence for us of what Jesus' focus is on. It's the heart. It's on the inner condition of man, not the external circumstances of these people. And we see that further in verse 19. Jesus said to him, said to this Samaritan, 
this healed, cleansed leper, he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Not just physically. Physically, of course, he was well. The other ten were well as well. But spiritually, this man was made well. His gratitude, his faith, his returning with praise to God in a loud voice, this was evidence of a changed, renewed heart that had truly been grateful for the grace of God in his life. And the Greek word there for made well, it's the word sozo, which means to save, to deliver. The King James Version renders it, you've been made whole. Your faith has made you whole. You've been healed. You've been made well. And see, for you and I, the tr- the, here's, here's the main, what does this relate to me today, 2023? Jesus has been abundantly gracious to all of us. Far more so than we give him credit for or that we realize. I've heard one pastor say before, uh, I think I get, get this uh, quote right, but he said something to the effect of, you know, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, blesses you 10,000 ways, and you today are probably only aware of three of those instances. And that is so true. And the reality for you and I, God has done so much for us. If you want a detailed list, write some heavenly, holy homework for you, read Ephesians chapter 1 or Romans chapter 8 later today or this week. If you want a detailed list of how gracious God has been to his people, it's, it's re- literally a enumerated list of all the blessings of God in the life of a Christian. But in light of all of that, it's a simple, simple question. What do you say? How do you respond to that? What is the proper response to this God who has been so merciful and kind to you and I? Right, just a little sampling. He has saved us from hell. Right, we don't talk about hell much, but God has saved us from hell through Jesus. He has saved us from eternal death. In the book of John, Jesus tells us that a Christian, the person who believes in him, will never die. We've been saved from eternal death. We've been saved from wrath. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He is presently living with us and around us and with his people. Do you give thanks for all of these things? Do you see his grace? Are you grateful for his grace? And I encourage you, this week, take some time. It's probably a practice, something you've done before, but I encourage you to do it again, especially in light of the new year. It's a great time to do it. Use a bullet point list and reflect on all that God has done for you. Just the classic, what are you grateful for? What are you thankful for? If you don't want to write it down, just talk about it, right? Around the table. Talk about it with somebody you love, somebody you know, a church member. What are you grateful for? What has God done in your life? What are the things that you have not said thank you for in a while? And as one author says, and I close with this, as one author says, if you're grumbling in life, it's because you're not seeing grace. But if you are grateful in life, it's because you are seeing grace. But you see, in both of those instances, the constant truth is that God is gracious. His amazing grace never changes. It is never taken away from us until, right, 
the, the second death. After the, while we're here on earth, God's grace is still present with us. The simple question is, do you see it? Do you have eyes to see all that he's done for you? If you do, as this one man did, this one leper, when he saw he was healed, when you see the grace of God in your life, particularly through salvation, through Christ, through all that he's done for us, right? Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. That's what it's all about. When you and I see this, what do you say? What should you say? What should we say every single day? Thank you. Let's pray. And then we'll close with the doxology. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to do the impossible terms of human standards, human strength. Please take your divine word and press it deep into our hearts. Transform us, renew us, cleanse us. Give us a heart full of gratitude. Give us eyes that see your beauty. Give us eyes to see the grace that you have lavished upon us. Please help us more and more to come to you to simply say thank you. Apart from you, apart from your divine blessing in hand, we have nothing, we are nothing. Give us contentment for all that you've done and help us to spread this grateful spirit amongst our family and friends May this church be known as a grateful church. And may we be a light in this dark world that is so ungrateful to all that you are and all that you've done for us. We ask these things and commit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing the doxology with us?